Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Did somebody say playoffs? The NBA, MLB, and then NHL are in full swing and our partners have been online and got you covered. Are you a betting man, Derek? Sports betting? No, I am not. I'm not stupid. Betting sports is my favorite thing ever. And I think this year, the Lakers are a lock, a absolute lock to take out the title. LeBron James, fine form, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll be honest, I've never once won a bet. So take advantage of sports being back and get in on the action with hundreds of odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and sign up to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Get me there. Yeah, again, that's betonline.ag. Welcome, Antigua, Antigua listeners. And sign up today. Betonline.ag, sign up today. Betonline, your online sportsbook experts. I'm Derek Riley. I'm with Charlie Smith. And welcome to Dirty Water, where conversation roars to the flamenco of exaggeration and beams like a flashlight into an empty hole. Today's guest surf photography what Galileo was to astronomy. Like Columbus, he opens new vistas and sounds new depths. He is a handsome man of 34 years with a nose that might be described as a Germanic organ with this boldly boned bridge and slightly tilted, distinctly grooved, fleshy end. In 2006, he interned as a photo assistant at Transworld Surf. Two years later, he was scooped up by Surfly before being headhunted by Surf Magazine. Now, of course, he's the freest of agents. He has been swamped by innumerable photography and filmmaking awards, has published half a dozen books and made four feature-length films including the Netflix hit Under an Arctic Sky. Best of all, he brings the spirit of Brigham Young into the modern age, although we hope, like Young, he isn't brought to a premature end by cholera morbus and inflammation of the bowels. Today's guest, Mr. Chris Burkhardt. It was, um, well, we can talk about that in a second, but yeah, it was pretty dreamy. It was weird to be there without a mask and, you know, no sense of, like, social awareness just eating food going to restaurants you'd wake up in the morning not even thinking about a pandemic it was you you i honestly feel guilty it's weird coming out <laughs> it sounds it sounds like bondi it, yeah <laughs> did you did you think about buying property i hear that the whole thing has just fallen off a cliff and you can get cheap homes again in iceland you know what? I, I, I have an apartment there right now that I rent with a friend and I've been looking for the last couple of years into buying property. But the problem is I don't want to get property somewhere that I could potentially not get access to. So I need to figure out like how I would be able to, to go there during a pandemic or have some sort of citizenship or something like that. Um, yeah, it's complicated, but I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm working on that right now. Could, could you theoretically buy, uh, Iceland seems like one of those places where you could buy citizenship. Sort of <laughs> Probably. Well, they grant citizenship quite a bit to people. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> there, there is that, there is that conversation kind of, I'm, I'm trying to work, twist some, twist some arms, rub some elbows and whatnot. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. To tell us about tell us about your trip. Was it you're on a bicycle or something, right? Yeah, I did this uh, this traverse through the center of the country. Um, you know, just just a kind of some capacity of trying to you know have a killer experience and share a unique story. We uh, we shot a film about it, but it's like this this route that you know goes right through the heart of what I would say would be like the most rugged and diverse terrain, like volcanoes, and you know you're moving through big like 
lava flows and everything and hundreds of river crossings. It was, it was mega. It was definitely like a big undertaking. Um, but also really cool to like, you know, design a route. We hired an Icelandic cartographer, you know, to like build this route that went through along all these remote roads. And then you try to do it and you don't know if it's going to happen. And then it was sick. I mean, it was so it's cool. It's like a little, you know, slice of history that you hope to be able to share with people. So did you, did you always love like freezing cold climates or did you accidentally fall into the freezing cold climate guy? Uh, no, you know, to be, you know, there's a funny, there's a funny, there's a couple funny uh, ways of looking at it. One way is sort of my own personal journey of like being attracted to that. The other fact is like when you spend enough time babysitting surfers around the world and you realize that like, this could be the end of my this could be the rest of my life. You realize that you need to go to places that automatically weed out people you don't want to spend time with. And so the reality is the landscape does that for you. Like when you go to somebody and you're like, Hey, do you want to go to remote Alaska? Like I have no idea if there's waves there. All I've seen is photos on Google earth. It's expensive. It's going to be cold. Uh, and that's all you have to offer. Like it, it pretty much whittles down the, the amount of, um, applicable entrances as much as possible. And so I think what you're left with are people who would naturally want to be in these environments. And then on the, you know, that's kind of what I realized in maybe like the, the long term um, that this was a benefit because I was getting really fed up with like traveling with groms and realizing that like kids half my age, you, you're a glorified babysitter. And sometimes the team managers like basically just passing over, you know, the torch to be like, okay, cool. Well, you're in the hotel room, make sure they don't drink too much. And I was just like, dude, this sucks ass. Well, let's just, let's uh, just get right into it. Who is the biggest alcoholic prima donna Grom that you've ever worked with? I'm not even going to say that because I know it's going to be a poll quote somewhere weird. Um, But the reality is there, there's, there was a lot of them. I mean, I had a couple trips, especially back in the day, kind of working for Surfline and, um, and, you know, covering maybe some of the younger, younger athletes that they're all epic, you know, good kids for the most part, but you get them, you know, far away from home in a remote country and in Australia or whatever it is. And you're just like, holy cow, like this is next level, you know, and, and your job as a photographer is, is not to be a babysitter. You know, your job is to hopefully facilitate a rad experience and help hopefully tell a story and all this crap that, you know, maybe it's just a big delusion of grandeur, but um, ultimately I, I kind of realized quickly that like that was a part of the, the career path that I think you're expected to just have to deal with, you know? And I think one of the bigger problems with surfing and I, I shoot myself in the foot because I can only imagine how much this is going to come back to bite me in the ass, but like that mentality and that attitude of sort of the this like kind of prima donna just it seems to grow with people as they get older and stay with them and then you have full grown men who act like that and you're just like wait what what in the world and and I think this is kind of my shift is like going from shooting surfing as a career to like shooting climbing and shooting skiing and shooting these other sports where there's a high level of risk and there's a high level of um I guess you could say intensity that forces the um forces those people doing it to kind of like bring a little more to the table, you know, like it's, it's just a different deal. You know, when you're using 
life-saving equipment and ropes and cams and whatever, and you're going on a wall, like you have to bring a hundred percent focus as opposed to like, no, I'm going to go to the mentalize for a week and drink myself silly every night and then wear board shorts. And all I have to do is really remember to put on sunscreen and put stickers on my board. Like the level of entry for surfing is so low sometimes in terms of like what it requires mentally that I, I think it can foster a complacency that's just, it really does not benefit some people long-term. But it is cyclical because um, you have these people and they go through the, um, the prima donna grom and they become a, a CT surfer. But then on the downward side of the fame, they become lovely people generally. When they, when they need you, when they need the media. A hundred percent. And there's, to be honest, there's no greater people to spend time with than like a group of surfers who want to be in the water all day. And it's like, I mean, I've never been in a more enjoyable environment than on these trips. When you are with the right people, like the highlight of my life and career has been being on a beach somewhere with the Malloys or with Josh Mulcoy or with, um, some of these other people. But what I would, what I would say is that it's kind of this middle ground that I've found the most enjoyment. It's sort of this blue collar work ethic that you find in either guys who like were on the CT and kind of, kind of like realized that wasn't for them or did the contest circuit. And then they were kind of over it or guys who were just like free surfers and, um, and love to travel. Like there's that work ethic where, you find those people and you're, you're just like, this is an old soul and they're so fun to work with. And they're willing to go to the ends of the earth and, and surf some remote wave in the middle of nowhere. And that is sick. Like there's no better experience than, than doing that. I know you're, I know you're a cold water guy, but was one of the best experiences you've had traveling that, um, that little Island in the Caribbean with, um, Benny with B Bat- and Fisher and, <laughs> um, West Indies. I did, I did two trips. Yeah. To the Caribbean with, uh, with Ben Bourgeois, one with Dylan Graves. And uh, I mean, that wave is a toy, right? It's like, it's a wave pool before there was wave pools. You know, it's like what you dream of Kelly's wave pool being. I mean, I remember vividly this one moment where we're sitting on the beach and I, and no exaggeration, we're sitting on the beach. And I think it was like Ben Bourgeois. He's like, Oh, there's a set like way up the point. You know, you could just see it like kind of starting to like feather and he like gets up and like dusts off his board and like walks leisurely out to the water's edge, like 30 feet from where we're sitting. We have this like tent set up. We're kind of like just getting shade and uh, you know, it's just pumping swell obviously. And, and he like kind of sits there, looks at it and then just casually like walks out, jumps on his board. He's in like 15, he's like 15 feet off the beach, spins around and catches this wedge that he gets barreled catches a side wedge, gets barreled again, catches another side wedge. I've, I've never seen a more unique wave. And I felt like those are the guys like that was kind of that audience that I just, I tapped into. And I felt really grateful because Ben, you know, his, his hard work and a lot of the, a lot of those East coast surfers, they're tuned into like those swells in the Caribbean that are so unique. And that wave was insane. Like so sick. Isn't it interesting the um, fleeting nature of uh, a surf spot? That was the biggest news, I don't know, 10 years ago, whatever it was. And now you don't know anyone even talks about it. I I think it might have actually been completely destroyed um, also from that storm that happened a year or two ago. I mean, obviously, I know that the island that you have to go to to get there, that island got severely damaged. So I would envision that uh, the ferry and or 
all of that situation. But it was a, you know, the years that that happened, that the years that that was going on, it was amazing. I think every person that went there shot a cover. Um, every single trip, there was a cover created and like four of them were Ben Bourgeois. I had one of Dylan Graves. It was, you know, Ryan Miller shot one, Jimmy Kane shot one. It was, it was Rob Gilly shot one. It was crazy. I think of uh, Toto Santos, which yeah. was the like big wave. I mean, that was it. How many covers did Toto Santos have? And then gone, like never yeah. see Toto Santos anymore. Or, or uh, what's it called? Ghost trees in Carmel. Yeah, like, ghost trees. Wa- waves, waves have this moment in time where they kind of capture our imagination, you know, and that's a, that's always a funny experience. The fleet, you know, the word fleeting is really, is really true in many senses where like you go and you, you, you shoot something and then all of a sudden, like, it feels like the biggest, most important thing ever. And then all of a sudden you you're sitting there thinking how many times has this broken since then that nobody cares about, nobody's thinking about. And I think with cold water waves, that's honestly the thing that like you think about the most, how many days, how many swells happen in the Aleutians where there's nobody around for miles that even knows how to surf, that even knows what they're looking at. How many waves are just like, yeah, I don't know. That's a, it's a, it keeps me up at night sometimes for sure. Cold water, goddamn. Were you influenced um, at all by Ted Granberg? Because I remember when I worked at Surfing Life years ago, you know, he'd be up to Iceland and and Norway and Alaska. And you'd yeah, what the fuck are you doing, Teddy? You know, Teddy. It's funny because um, I would, I would, I, I'm, I, I've got a got a lot of opinions about surf photography and 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 the photographers themselves. And Teddy has always been one of the kindest nicest dudes on the planet. Like there's never been anybody that I've met where I, I hope that they lived up to the reputation. I remember meeting him on the gold coast for some event for Patagonia. And he was just like the kindest soul, like the most willing to share the most stoked and his early work for the search, you know, he went to Svalbard, he documented like the most Northern surfer in some capacity. I love the history of surf photography and he's played such a huge role. Like I think one reality is like, I think for myself, I've, I've kind of taken pride in finding new waves in some of these places, but Ted and many others, like they paved the way, like Ted went to Iceland years, I think before I did. And he went to, to Norway, like way, way back in like 2000, um, and did some of the first trips and like that stuff, you know, was, was groundbreaking truly at the time. Like he, and what's funny is you don't think of him as like this cold water guy. You just think of him as this person who is like willing to go anywhere. But yeah, I, um, his work was actually a, a massive influence, but I think it was his like character and the way that he shared these places that made, that made them kind of larger than life, at least for me. And he, what, and he what do you think? Oh, sorry, Derek. No, you get a chance. I'd much rather listen to you. I mean, mine was going to be off topic, but Chris, what do you think is the negative stereotype of a surf photographer? Um, that they're just cocksuckers, which is, I hate the bastards. FYI, hate them all. (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, it it is (laughs) Pete Terrace is, is my godfather. Um, I love the man. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think that the, the negative stereotypes of surf photography is, is just the, the, the kind of the ruthlessness, the, the, the backstabbing, the, the, whatever, um, you know, the undercutting of rates and then just like, I've never been privy to it, but just like the, the kind of lineup that, that sort of assimilates it at pipe sounds pretty gnarly. And to be honest, I've never been a confrontational person. And I think that's really what drove me to want to go to places where, um, 
there just wasn't other people. And if I could just be totally transparent, like it's really easy to take a good photo in somewhere that nobody's ever been. There's nothing to compare it to. I mean, I've tried to like share this with younger photographers. Like you're going to, if you go somewhere and you think it's important to like go to the pipe or go, all you're doing is you're, you're forcing yourself to compare everything you've created with everything that's out there. And that's so hard. Like, how do you do that? So I, I guess for me, like, I don't, I don't see some, you know, crazy talent. I don't, I, you know, there's a lot more technically sound. There's, you know, there's guys who are like swimming in just the, the most crazy conditions. I've always just prided myself on the person who is like the most thick headed and willing to like endure the, the most heinous conditions to try to find that location or put in more research than somebody else. Like if it came down to it, um, you know, pure creativity or athleticism is, is over here. And for me, it was like, I was willing to like put in the time and the research and the, the resources to like get to that remote Island to maybe find that wave. And that's always benefited me. Um, and so I think that in some ways there is a laziness that, that I've seen at times with people and, um, and, and, you know, it's just hard. It's like, it's like an unwillingness to, um, to share information, right. To, to like, which I get, I understand because, you know, in the days, the the nineties and the early two thousands of like, you know, the, the Tim Joneses and the Jack Englishes, you know, and, um, and, and I say that because I have respect for both these guys, like, you know, it's cutthroat. Like, you know, there's only so many people. It was a coveted, coveted job title. And, those guys are out there, you know, do, working their ass off to try and make a living. And, you know, you have somebody coming up and working for cheaper or working harder. This is not, it's, you don't really want to share your, your trade secrets. Um, but I kind of found in many ways, like that over time, that's, that sort of um, been watered down a little bit. And you're seeing guys who are, who are pushing the levels of creativity, you know, and, and you have guys who are, who are kind of outperforming people, because of their willingness to work harder. And I think that the hard work, the blue collar mentality, that's just always been where I've come from. And I've, you know, I look at the guys now that are doing it and I'm like, I'm so impressed by like what they're able to, to bring to the table, you know? So you're from, so you're from a surfing background, but now, you know, you're really into climbing and um, bicycling. Um, <laughs> was that, was, I was just blessed with big quads, man. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> like I, I, I was, about, you know, I, I grew up, um, I grew up boogie boarding. I surfed like, you know, growing up at the, oh, I grew up board, at the beach. Big guys, yeah. Tight asses. Cause of the, all the, all the fin work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Small shoulders. <laughs> oh, you always yeah. notice about bodyboarders that have um, a great ass and big quads and these yeah. tiny arms. I mean, aren't, but aren't some of the best water photographers in the world, uh, bodyboarders? Scott, right? I would, I yeah. would say most of them yeah. are, you know, you, you look at Russo, you look at Todd, you know, and whatnot. And, um, I definitely you would not. A yeah, I would not consider myself a great water photographer, but it, I think it gives you a, a get, if, you, if you were to say just go into surf photography, being a surfer, I think that being a body surfer or being a body boarder gives you a, an advantage because you're used to like shore break and heavy waves and you're used to wearing fins. Like there's just certain things that you're more comfortable with in the beginning, potentially. Wow. But, you, but like I said, you've transitioned to... Um bicycling and, uh, and climbing, do they come later in life after, um, surfing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, to be honest, like some of that was a pretty natural transition. I worked a lot. Um, I was on contract for Patagonia for a number of years. And so I was shooting a lot of their surf program 
traveling with uh, Keith and, and Dan and Chris at times. And then I, I met people there like Jeff Johnson and other people who were like, you know, doing other sports. And I kind of realized like, Oh, well I could, I could do these other things and I could shoot other stuff for their catalog. And it was just beneficial to my overall career. And then I, I think what happened was, you know, the, the harsh reality of, of shooting surfing for a living is that all the very best days you're on the beach or you're in the water, you're not out surfing, you're not experiencing that. And to be honest, that really is a great way to kill the passion. Right. So like, it's kind of one of those things where like all the crappy worst windy days, that's what you're left with. And so it, it kind of, I burnt out really quickly, you know, realizing that when I would come home, I'd want to like go climbing or I'd want to go to Yosemite or I'd want to go skiing or, or do something else where like there was a level of, of um, like epic conditions that kind of stayed consistent. And, and that's, I think what happened. And so my, yeah, working for Patagonia at the time really helped me introduce me to a lot of people that taught me a lot of things. And I think it, benefited my career long-term because it just introduced me to other stuff as well. Are, uh, are like climbing photographers or snow photographers mm-hmm. as big a cocksuckers as surf photographers? I mean, is definitely, there like, definitely not. Um, really? Maybe, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cock to be sucked out there, but, um, <laughs> um, but I would say, um, I would say that here's the thing is like the barrier of entry again is greater for certain sports, right? Like, you're not going to go um, like heli ski down some super technical face or ride some couloir on your first go, nor I think as a photographer, are you going to feel comfortable in those situations? Like, you know, being on slope or, or, or going up on El Cap and like rigging El Cap to shoot a line on El Cap. Like it's, that's gnarly, right? Like, but surfing, you could post up at pipe and like shoot a foot or swim out at pipe and totally get destroyed or whatever uh, your very first day. Right. Like the, I think in some ways the barrier of entry for surfing is, is a little less. Um, and I think that's sometimes what creates a lot of this, uh, animosity, right? Like the, the whole like digital camera revolution of people taking, you know, every person having a digital camera and shooting photos that, that didn't happen in all sports. It happened a lot in surfing because that was, you could stand on the beach and shoot an Epic photograph next to somebody who's doing it professionally. Wow. So why, why didn't it, um, why did the digital camera thing happen uh, in snow and uh, climbing and shit? I mean, it, it did. But what I mean by that is like to get the epic angle, to get the epic perspective in climbing, you have to be sometimes Freaking. on the wall yeah. or like, yeah, you have to be, you have to know how to be there. Like imagine, you know, you're trying to shoot El Cap, one of the, the biggest vertical faces in North America. You're not going to be doing it from the Valley floor. Like, a mile away you kind of have to be there you have to be like so so what i mean by that is like there's a little bit of technical expertise that has to go into it it's not just like the random tourist showing up on the north shore maybe taking a photo or something like that and with skiing too like i think that those guys are going way out into the backcountry and so you have to know the athletes you have to have the access but the beach is public domain so everybody's there and because everybody's there it kind of fosters an environment where um you just have a lot of eyes on it, you know, and, um, and granted, like that's a part of what makes it so pure and rad and beautiful, but it's also, I think what has created, um, in some ways, uh, the mentality that, yeah, like it can be a little bit cutthroat in that. And I, and I respect it, but also that's just why I personally wanted to remove myself from it. 
So you can't just post up on the uh, on the grass with your 600 and your bag of chips, take photos of climbing, huh? Yeah, with your big gulp on your tripod. And I think, <laughs> and uh, I mean, there's people still doing that and, and making a living. I just, I think that in some ways, like maybe I need a little more risk in my life to like feel um, like what I was creating was worthwhile and kind of like going to the same places year after year started to feel like a repetition. And that that's a scary thing to be in. You know, it doesn't foster a lot of growth. doesn't foster a lot of like creative cycles to happen, you know? And, and I mean, that's, I think that's important to anybody's life man. Really. When, when you're shooting something, do you know when you got a good shot? Like, are you, I mean, does it feel like you're creating the art? Like, do you, does it, does inspiration strike and you just get that lightning bolt of like, oh, I got it. Or no, do you, do you only see it afterwards? I, to be honest, I, I am um, twice in my life, you know, one time when I shot this photograph of uh, Peter Mendia, probably like one of the more iconic photos early in my, my career, it won, it won the Red Bull Loom. I remember it's this crazy backwash and it was like such a cool moment, like such a special moment. Any person who who is in their right mind would have seen the photo and been like, that's rad, awesome. I remember in that moment when I shot that, I didn't even look at the camera. I was so stressed out because the waves were so good that I was like, oh my, I like, I was, I, I was actually nervous because I saw what happened and I wasn't sure if I shot it or if something was wrong that I didn't even want to look at it. I didn't look at it for like a day later. And to be honest, it wasn't until like two weeks later that I really like looked at the photo on the computer and let myself appreciate it in some way. And, um, I think it's kind of always been like that. Like when those moments are happening, when the volcano is out and you're in Alaska or when the waves are perfect and you're in wherever, every cover or notable photo, like I, I think that's been like a, it feels like war kind of, you know, like it feels like you have this like trauma that's happening and you're trying to get through it. And I, I would relate that to like trying to, you know, crawl under barbed wire or something like that. I don't know. May, there are people who seem like they can manage that a lot better. I, I feel like I envision Morgan Masson, like taking a photo and like staring at it and appreciating it and knowing that he nailed it and then not needing to take any more. But I'm just like, there are moments where I'm just spray and pray, you know, just shoot until you hope that you get it. And um, maybe that's kind of like, um, you know, the, the mentality that I've just approached it with is like, I think when I, what I've gotten better at over time in my career is not being more creative or being more technically sound. It's recognizing when a moment is actually special or significant, like when the waves are really good and just shooting the crap out of it, shooting every angle I can, you know, I'm the guy who's like running up on the grassy knoll and then down on the beach and then doing this and that. And then like trying to get a water housing together and flooding the housing and um, it's stress. It's pure stress. So famously in, um, well, famously because it was in your TED talk, you're uh, shooting during a blizzard in Norway and then you started losing perception of where you were and, and you didn't know whether you, whether you were floating out to sea or floating towards the beach. Can you talk about talk about that experience? Yeah. And, and, you know, again, I'm not the first to ever have been out in freezing cold water. You know, there's there's these iconic stories of like, I think Jeff Devine's first trip to Norway where he, he, he's wearing these super thick, you know, seven millimeter gloves and he's shooting film and he goes out there and he realizes by the time he got out there that he had shot off every single frame because he couldn't feel his fingers. And those are the stories that like inspired me as a young photographer and, and Teddy Grambos. And I mean, the history of surf photography is, 
is really like I'm passionate about it and I love those early things. So I would I would add my story to kind of the mix of like being unprepared, not knowing what the hell I was doing and and kind of submitting myself to that experience where I went out in the water, I had flooded the housing, I came back in, I rebuilt the housing, I tried to warm up, I went out there, I was already cold and I shot until I literally couldn't feel my, my hands didn't work. I was like pushing the trigger on my chin and stuff. And, um, and I remember being out there with Dan Godowskis and Keith Beloy and, and, and you're in this place where the winds are like catabatic, right? They, they just, they, they come through this Valley and they funnel and it'll be totally calm. And then all of a sudden, like a, a 50 mile an hour gust to where the offshores, they create such a haze above you. You can't even see what's going on. And all of a sudden, like a blizzard blew in. And I just remember a big part of it wasn't so much that it was hard to figure out where the land was, but, but when you're, when you start to get hypothermic, you, you, you start to get like vertigo, you lose sense of perception. I remember I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go in and I'm paddling on my back because I can't bear to put my face in the water anymore. And I'm kicking, kicking, kicking. And then I remember like hearing someone's voice and Dane's like, where are you going? And I was like paddling out to sea. Um, and at that point I couldn't see land and I saw like a seagull above me just circling and I'm like, cool. So this is how it ends. <laughs> um, and, and, and then Pat, and then I finally like navigated, I kind of saw where the waves were going, paddled in. And I remember putting my feet down on the ground and like I had fins on, I had seven millimeter booties on my legs felt like two peg legs, like a pirate. Right. I, was just like, this is gnarly. Like I, I'm not going to die paddling out to sea. I'm going to die in the shore break trying to get through these slippery boulders because I, I couldn't walk. And so I kind of floated in and then I got on all fours and luckily Keith or Dane was there. And I like, they literally had to help carry me to the car, um, which was, you know, a ways up the beach. And, um, that was a, it was a heinous experience to be honest. And, um, and in many ways kind of just made me appreciate, I think every time you get to be in those conditions and see waves that good, because for some reason, like you're feeling all this, you know, heinous cold weather, but every time a set would roll in, like all that would fade away for a second. And all you could think about was like shooting. And, and that's a, that's kind of a weird and or dangerous game that we play with ourselves where like our goal of, I guess, working and creating some type of art you could call it is like more important than our own health so and how how good were the work because you, you you found pretty dang amazing waves in uh, norway and russia and far um, yeah yeah i mean we um the, that trip my first trip to norway um was some of the best cold water surf i had seen in that point it was like we were we were surfing this left-hander that dane was claiming was like you know was like a cold water, freezing, freezing cold water moondaka. You know, it was like sucking up on this ledge. The locals were saying it was as good as it gets, you know, and it, and the hard thing was it kept getting better and better, but, but the visibility just was gone. We couldn't see. And so we had to go in and uh, it was amazing. It was like these like four or five, six second barrel rides all the way to the inside. It looked like a, a mini, um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know what you compare it to. It was, it was rad. What's what's your favorite uh, like offbeat surf scene that you've discovered in terms of like not just the surf but the culture around it? I mean, Iceland has the raddest surf culture I think I've ever and ever I've ever seen. Just the the people, the characters, the way that um, 
the way they've been introduced to its route, Norway as well, like the history of, of a surf culture is really significant to me. Like in that bay where you surf in Unstad, which is like one of the main bays, uh, Marion, who's like Marion and Tommy, they run the surf camp there. They're awesome. Her dad was like the first surfer in that whole area. And he learned from like dudes he saw in the military. And then he came back and like, you know, there's these stories of like shaping a surfboard from the door of a refrigerator. They have the first surfboard that they ever shaped there in their little lodge. It's amazing when you, when you realize that like that generation of surfers is just one generation removed, you realize how pure and, and simplistic that passion is. Um, Iceland too, just because I've been privy to it for so many years and seeing it grow and seeing these guys like actually shred, they're so talented and good. Um, and, and the quality of waves, like all of a sudden, um, the quality of waves are surfing is getting better and better and better because their skill sets getting better. And I, and I just, yeah, I don't know. I appreciate that. It's, it's funny to witness the birth of like a surf shop or like surf, like the wetsuits, they can finally get wetsuits that there's boards that can be, can be like purchased in these places. And so you see the birth of, of younger surfers coming in. And then, I mean, who knows how that will transpire in the next 20 years. Also wave pools, you know, will play a part in that, but yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, there's an eclecticness to it all. Like, in Iceland, you'll have people who wear wool socks underneath their booties because, like, they swear by the the strength of Icelandic wool, and it's so sick. Like, um, you know, changing with a towel in the parking lot is kind of seen as like, as like, you know, weak. <laughs> so, like, you'll have guys just butt, butt naked in the cold in the winter, just changing, and it's like, it's like the, a classic. It's it's awesome. So, I mean, there's just aspects of it that make it really cool and, and remind you that like, don't take this too seriously because you're just riding a piece of foam on the ocean. Derek Riley loves to change nude in a car park. I Go. thought it was an Australian thing. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> Apparently it's not. Apparently Derek Riley is Icelandic. Well, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of my nudity. And I think yeah. um, Americans and Australians are peculiarly ashamed of um, their own nudity and other people's nudity. Maybe you just got something to show off. Yeah, I got, got a great ass. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what a kicking, yeah, what a kicking exactly. shit. Hey, um, so you you did a um, obviously did a TED talk. How did that happen? Mm. That's a pretty big deal for a uh, an action sports photographer to do a yeah. TED. Yeah, yeah. You know, I still I I don't really quite know how that happened, and I don't really feel like I I was deserving of it at the time, and. I question that today, but to be honest, it was a wild process where I had made a video um, about surfing in Norway. Um, it was like my second trip there. And we had just, we shared a video about the, the kind of the passion of cold water and the guys that do it and why you'd go there and, and all the periphery things of what makes it significant. And then somebody reached out to me from Ted. They're like, Hey, do you have any more to say on this subject? And I was like, yeah, for sure. And of course I was like, I have no idea what to say. And they're like, okay, well, you know, we're going to give you a 10 minutes to basically deliver the one kernel of truth you have to offer the world. And by the way, it's the biggest stage you'll ever speak on. So let us know in six months what you got. And I, I mean, that was the most stressful six months of my life. I revised my talk 17 times. I mean, you know, it was, it was heavy. It was really hectic. Um, and I tried to whittle it down to something that I, I felt like maybe the surf community would be proud of and the people that had joined me on these experiences would be proud of because I felt in part like I was speaking on their behalf and on behalf of their experiences because that was a big part of it. 
Um, but yeah, it was, it was weird. I remember being, being at Ted sitting next to Al Gore, um, and his security guards and like in my session, like the person that spoke after me was Monica Lewinsky. And, and I'm just like, where where am I? Like, why am I here? Like, why is this, this like Mexican kid from central California, even, even allowed in here, you know, I should be serving food. Um, and that was really a trip, man. It was a weird experience to be honest. Wow. So, so you're a Mexican, you're Mexican more aren't you? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm half Mexican. My dad was full Mexican, but I'm, uh, I'm like uh, 16% Native American. And um, yeah, I'm a whole, I'm a, pit, I'm, a, I'm a pit bull of just random, uh, random things mixed together. Like Elizabeth Warren, part, yeah. part Indian, <laughs> part Mexican. And, and, um, and a moment, so how does a, um, how does it, you're from San Luis Obispo, huh? I am. Yeah, absolutely. So how did, how did a, um, a half Mexican, um, one sixth red Indian um, become a Mormon? Oh man, you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, my, I didn't, I didn't really get into any kind of religion until like maybe, you know, early in my, my life. I think I was like 10 years old and um, it was something I had been introduced to as, as a, as a kid, just from my, my family. And, you know, um, at the time it was just me and my mom. I grew up at the single parent home. Um, I was looking and, you know, for a long time for kind of like that, that sense of like leadership and guidance. And, and, you know, you, when you grow up without a passport and you grew up in a, you know, at poverty level, um, you know, you're, you're kind of looking for a way to, I think, better your life. And, And ultimately that's been a big journey for me is just trying to figure out how to better my life, my family's life, whether that's through a career, whether that's through something else. And that's honestly like been the reason like what the role that faith has played in my life, you know, in, in some capacity is, is, um, I guess seeking in some capacity, how I could, um, how I could have a more focused oriented goal. And so it was a weird thing. Cause I, I would, I would attribute a lot of the success that I've found, which isn't much, but I, I would say that a lot of that success has been because I, I got married young. I wasn't that kid. Like, you know, I never went to college. So there wasn't much partying happening in my early twenties. There wasn't much chasing girls. It was just like, I gave up so many things and just focused on my career. And that was kind of all I had my career and religion. And, and, um, and that was really a huge focus for me. And it, I think in some ways it kept me like grounded, like the blinders on a little bit. Um, did you, but yeah. did you do a mission? I didn't know. I actually, uh, I love that you're just going straight into the hardest things to talk about. Um, no, it's a place no, where yeah, hard things are yeah, made easy. Hard, hard, ultra hard candy. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> I actually, I didn't, uh, I didn't serve a mission because I, I made some choices in my life at a young age that sort of disqualified me from that opportunity. And that was like a huge sense of guilt for me for many years. Um, and that was something that really like hung heavy on me because obviously I wanted to, I wanted to do that. I, I, I was driven and so excited to have that opportunity, but I'm, I just think that in many ways, you know, you have to sow your oats and you have to do what you have to do. And that was exactly where I felt like I missed out on was that opportunity. And, and a big, I think theme in my life, I guess you could say, or a driving force in my life was trying to prove to my own, you know, mom who sacrificed a lot for me, um, had me at, you know, 17 years old that I was like worth it and that her sacrifice was worth it, which 
which I would say it's a really simple analogy. It's just like, you know, you're, you're, you're given this great opportunity to have life and to have somebody like give you this gift and you feel indebted to them. The moment that you kind of like realize what that person went through for you, you realize that like, okay, well, you, I have no excuse, but to be successful in some capacity or to, to, to level up to, I think what I think would be the, the, you know, being a, a, I guess a worthy son, you know, so that that's been a driving force and that's maybe what pushed me to the brink of, um, of some of these places in the middle of nowhere. And, and I don't know, maybe there's even a bit of like running away from something that I've, that I've done, which is what's brought me to a lot of these cold and harsh environments. And, um, and I found a lot of peace and solace there, which is, uh, which is an odd thing. So when you're, you're, you're the anti-Jono. <laughs> yeah, <you're good. laughs> so to Chris, when you were perusing the different catalogs for all the religions, there's Christianity, <laughs> um, you know, all the various strains of Protestantism, you know, Chaz is the cavalry and shit. And um, Judaism, which is pretty hard to get into, Islam, and and and, uh, and then you got to um, Church of Latter Day Saints. Why did you choose the Church of Latter Day Saints? I mean, every Mormon I've met yeah. been very, very kind. Was it? Was yeah. it the niceness? You know, I think it was like the family values, and it was a big part of it. Was like my um, my early early in my life, like my grand my my grandma and some of my relatives were were in that church and I had gone as a, as a young, young kid. And then what's funny is like my mom had me at a young age and, uh, and basically we, she wanted nothing to do with it at all. <laughs> like totally anti. And I remember coming to her like when I was like 10 and I'm like, Hey, I actually had this, this friend of mine in school. This, this is the funniest thing is like some of my family was Mormon, but I, I in no capacity joined because of them or with them, I had a friend in, in school who was Tongan. Um, his name was Will Now, and his whole family was uh, was full full blooded Tongan. And and you know, I'm a I'm a young kid, you know, um, who has no brothers and sisters. And like, I, there's this huge family that just let me in, and we'd go over and we'd like, you know, build tree houses and catch frogs and all that stuff. And 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 uh, they they sort of took me in like a brother. And, for like those four or five years, I was inseparable with their whole family and they were Mormon and they were LDS and I would go to church with them. And I just was like, everything that they have, I want. And everything that, that their religion taught them, which was like, your food is sacred, you know, you know, your body is sacred, appreciate it, yada, yada, yada. Like, I just cared about that. And I think that Tongan culture and Polynesian culture was a huge part of my life in those early ages. I mean, it was weird. It was, it was weird thinking that like, you know, at a, <laughs> at like an early age that like having a kava ceremony was a normal Saturday night, you know? Um, and, uh, and it was rad, but then I went to my mom and I'm like, Hey, I want to, I want to, I'd like to look into this and join. And she's like, no way. And I'm like, no, I'm going to do this. She's like, okay, I'm only, you can only do it if I do it with you. And so that's exactly um, how that happened and how that, how that came about. It was kind of a wild, wild experience for sure. So how do you join? Is it, is it, is there immersion and baptism? There's a blood ceremony, you know, you gotta, you know, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's just like well, it's, uh, Christian babies or something. Yeah, no, it's like, you just, uh, it's a, I mean, the, the, the funniest thing is, is that, that, you know, joining is something where everybody takes pretty seriously because nobody wants you to go in and like, make this decision. Like you can't just be like, I want to join. And tomorrow you're, you're, you're going to get baptized. It's like, no, like 
they're trying to teach you like, here's the things that we believe and, um, you know, chastity and, and like, you know, treating your body like a, a temple, you know, no drinking, no smoking, all those things. So they try to like take you through the process of having important and thoughtful lessons um, of, of what you're basically signing up for and what you're agreeing to, because you're making what they, what they call and what we refer to as covenants, which is like a promise between you and the creator. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, like the process usually takes a couple of weeks and, and you do some interviews and, and you go through that process and there's a lot of self-reflection involved. And then you hopefully uh, you take the plunge. So when they, uh, when they brought up chastity, did you say, Um, when they brought up chastity, that's definitely always been the, the biggest challenge, right? I mean, that was a part of the reason that I, I couldn't serve a mission, you know, in my life. And it was a, it was a really touching, touchy subject, you know, you're, especially when you consider the career path, you're traveling around with these, um, you know, like full bred racehorses around the world, trying to, you know, explore remote parts. And, and, and a lot of times at night, all they wanted to go do is party, you know? So, um, that was always just a nightmare. I can, I can only tell you that there were so many, so many places in the world where like we would be in remote Russia or we'd be somewhere else and dudes are going out to party or dudes are going out to like a strip club. And I'm just like locking myself in my hotel room. Um, because not only because I, I don't want to go and I don't want to deal with that, but also because I don't want to deal with what's going to come back with them. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, they're going to bring back some, some chick, huh? She's going to come. Oh, I mean, it's yeah, it would, it wouldn't have been the home. first time. And I'm like, Nope. I'm like, this is my room. Like you go somewhere else. So yeah, it, 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 it honestly made for, a, um, it made my career even more challenging having to kind of deal with that and making these, um, sort of decisions in my life at a young age, you know, um, it was, it was challenging, but yeah, that's, I got married at 21 and I never looked back. And that was kind of the, I think the, the key for me was just to find somebody that I cared about and loved and, and move forward in that direction and never look back. So beautiful. <laughs> Did you ever put a glass up to the wall of the, um, the Grummies um, hotel room so you could listen to them fucking shit? <laughs> I've heard enough that I, uh, I think I've gotten my fill. Um, I've heard some, and I've, I've heard and I've seen enough stuff in my life where I'm like, you know what? I think I've gotten my, I've gotten my fill of, of, uh, of what's out there. I mean, that's just the reality is you travel with, again, young, energetic, excited, you know, young surfers and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm done. And it, that's, that's kind of, I think to be on, like to come full circle, that's what brought me back to wanting to go to like colder environments is like, you just don't, you don't have, you know, uh, nobody's uh, horny uh, in cold environments. Nobody's horny in cold environments. There's also <laughs> not a bar. There's also like, if you're going to pick up a chick in some remote, really, really, really cold place in Norway, it's, it's, uh, you, you gotta be pretty desperate in certain places. So I think that that was maybe like subconsciously, I was kind of trying to like thrust these, this crew of people into these, these harsher places, because I just knew that like, I wasn't going to lose them to a night of partying. Cause I mean, some, I, some of the best days of waves basically fell, um, you know, they, they, we, we just couldn't, the, the guys couldn't motivate. <laughs> they couldn't get up and that, that sucked really bad. In, in early days, uh, back when surf photography was a real thing. And our, I mean, when it was a paying thing, 
I remember just wandering around thinking, I'm so lucky that I'm a rider, that <laughs> any surfer can be as debauched as they want. And there's my story. Uh, the poor surf photographer is totally screwed at that point. Dude, and, and to be honest, I've seen some guys that that their, their job as surf photographer goes far beyond, I think, the act of taking photos. They're like waxing up surfboards and this and playing caddy and 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 just being a literal personal assistant or babysitter. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to do that. I don't if that if that's what I have to do to like rub shoulders with world world number four or five, I'm like, screw that. You know, I don't I don't care. I want to. I want to be somewhere where I can see somebody suffer and document that experience because they're going to grow and learn something. And I also want to experience that myself. And I'm sorry, but it's hard to experience that in Bali or on the gold coast or, you know um, you know, I, I just, in the early days, sometimes too, of like working for Surfline and traveling a little bit with Lewis Samuels, that, that was a touch and go experience where I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm not associated with this person. I'm just here on assignment. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I was privy to a lot of um, a lot of stuff that I didn't really want to have to deal with, and at a certain point, I just like was like, I'm over it. I'm never going back. So. I remember uh, Ted Gramba, who um, never had you know two twenty cent pieces to rub together. He would often have to pay for millionaire pro surfers for their hotel rooms and their cars because they're so fucking useless. Yeah, that wouldn't have been the first time. I mean, I I kind of. Um, tried early days to like, I learned pretty well how to raise money for trips because a lot of times the first trip to like Kamchatka that I went on or whatever, like the magazine just wouldn't pay. There was no money, you know, and there, there wasn't enough, there, there might've been money to get us there, but like the heli flight and the food and the and like, so it, there was a lot of fundraising that would happen like through various sources, you know, to try and to like get these trips. So there was a real element of like hustle that went into it, which I, I kind of miss and I kind of love that aspect of it. But yeah, I mean, that was, that was even during the heyday when there was money. I'm, nowadays I can, I can't even imagine how a magazine survives. Well, back then it was rivers of gold. I think, I think there's one issue of surfing that had a million dollars of um, advertising. Are you serious? Oh rivers God. of gold, mate. That's when we started stab, it was just rivers of gold. This fucking yeah. money pouring in. You just couldn't stop it. So enough of that. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so Chris, you uh, you interned at uh, Transworld when you were 21, I think. Yeah, I was like 19, I think. And I I would leave my house in San Luis Obispo. I would drive down to Oceanside at 3 a.m. And I would sleep in my truck in the parking lot for five days um, and take showers in the bathroom before everybody got up. And I interned under Pete Terrace, Chris Cote, Justin Cote, uh, it was a, it's it a was a rad, it was a sick crew. I mean, I mean, but this was like in the hate, like Transworld was the magazine, you know, like it was like the Dustin Humphreys, Tim Jones, Jack English era where like, I mean, again, I love the history of surf photography. And there was this moment in time where that was like, had the best art direction. I think some of the best editorial leadership, Joel Patterson was a part of it for a minute. And then he took, he stepped out and I was kind of there during that period, that transitionary period where it kind of went from being really awesome to maybe not so awesome. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a rad experience. I learned a lot about the editorial process and like how to pitch a story, what makes a story good. And, and, and sadly also learn that like advertisers control the magazine. So 
it was important to play to like their needs and what they were looking for. And I used to think that magazines were just this purebred thing that all they cared about was the content, but it was really based around like, what are they selling in this moment? Is it board shorts? Is it wetsuits and whatnot? So. Dustin Humphrey was, I think one of the great uh, surf photographers. Um, Hero. Yeah. Did he influence you at all, Chris? Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I mean, Dustin, what Dustin did for surf photography was he gave the young photographer the, the license to be creative, right? Um, there was a moment in time where it was like, it was all about front lit action and this and that. And like, if your logos don't have the, if your photos don't have the logo showing or whatever, it wasn't going to be worth it. And I think that Dustin came in and he was just, he was pushing the boundaries mainly because he had access to the best guys. He was the first guy who like relocated himself to an insane area where the waves were good. And, and just the way he'd kind of built his business. And I'm not going to go into the, the personal aspects of how he might've like, you know, the stories of how he might've like treated assistants or this and that, but like the, what he had kind of done to like create a photo studio and then had X and Y and Z trip. And, and just like, he, he kind of brought, I think the skateboard mentality of like the studio aspect of like, I'm going to go to this spot and I'm going to create this photo with this light and this, whatever, whether that was by the use of a jet ski or a helicopter or a whatever, awesome. Or whether that's with like a red filter and Scala film or whatever. Um, I, I took a lot of creative license for that. I remember buying like a cheap Hasselblad replica and trying to shoot medium format photos. I, I had like one printed and I was so proud and, um, and just like, it was a really cool time because there was a lot of experimentation happening. And I think coming from like, like sort of flame era photography and seeing that, and then this this changeover was really was really awesome and was really beautiful. And I think I think Pete Terrace he he helped to move that along a, a lot. I, I do I I, I want to always make sure to give some credit to him as as wild of a crazy person as he is and as tumultuous of a relationship as me and him had. I love him to death. But did he, he, was, did he turn you into interracial pornography? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. No, uh, he, I mean, just, I, I live like Pete, let me live at his house. Pete gave me all my first opportunities, but definitely there's moments where there's been a little bit of this and, and I, but I, it's like a brother, you know, it's like a, a brother type of opportunity. I mean, I remember vividly him sitting me down at Wahoo fish tacos right after my internship and him like begging me not to be a surf photographer because of how, because he cared because he's like, this is a crappy career path you're going to get stuck here, yada, yada, yada. And I, all I remember is feeling like pissed off. Like, you don't want me to do this. You don't believe in me, blah, blah, blah. blah. And, and it just like, all it did was fuel me more, but truly he was just like looking out for me. You know, it was a funny, it's a funny experience, but. I love that Pete told you that probably at almost near the heyday of surf photography. I mean, it would have been still good days back then. It, it was, it was like, it, it was, I mean, it was the time when like creativity was, I think at an all time high, you had photographers coming in that were purely like these, like, you know, art guys, you know, who were like doing something way, way different, you know? And, and I, I mean, you have like, I mean, yeah, there's so many names to list, but you have Reposar who like had a totally different background, bringing something way different. You had, you had Sherm who was bringing in whatever Sherm did at a time, you know, which was interesting and, and kind of this like resurgence of like the culture, not just the action, because it had been very action oriented in that period of time. 
what do you, what do you think when you flip through Instagram now and see you know everybody's a, everybody's a photographer and uh, I don't know I mean are you inspired by what you see out there or does it is it just white noise? I mean, I'm just as inspired as the next person, but I think that in many ways, it's a lot of, uh, it's like chain smoking, you know, like you're just, you're just sort of getting these quick hits of dopamine. And, and to be honest, what I really cling to is like, what's the deeper story? What's the deeper element? I've had to personally take a big step away from social media realizing, I mean, I, I like, I think that to understand what I'm saying, it's, it's important to start in the beginning, which is like, I, I was going on these trips creating thousands of images and the journalist was coming back telling one story for the magazine. And my experience of like being in a jail cell in Russia or being in some, you know, crazy storm in Norway, like that wasn't being told. And I had all these thousands of photos and I was like, where can I share this? Like I felt in a sense of creativity that I wanted to put out there. And so Blogspot became the first place I would like write articles and then Facebook and then Instagram. And that's always what it was for me. And so nowadays where there's just stuff that's being put out there that's kind of meaningless, not, not to say that there's not a story behind it, but that story is not being shared. I, I really cling to the work that I feel like supports something greater. Like I want to look into that. I want, does this, is this about a film or is this about a book or is this about a, whatever, a podcast? I don't know. So I think that we're all starving for more, I hate to use this word, but authentic content that has meaning behind it. And so when you find something like that, even a podcast, it's like, this is storytelling. We're having a long form conversation. This is what people used to do around campfires with probably less nudity, you know, um, and less drug use, you know, and, and whatnot. So ultimately like it's still such a viable source of inspiration to me. And so I think I look for that and I try to, weed through the cracks because there's a lot of crap on Instagram that, that does suck. But I think it's more about how it's being presented and how it's being put out there. So let's talk about your arrest in Vladivostok. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't so much an arrest as it was um, of just a, a, an oversight on my end and a young, dumb, um, I was just, because you are Mormon. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was an interesting experience. That's for sure. Um, but ultimately I didn't check my visa entry date and, uh, I, I blew it and I, yeah, there was a full life-changing experience for me because having all your rights stripped from you and being thrown in a jail cell was a really terrifying, terrifying experience. Um, but I mean, I've, I've told the story a million times and it's out there in the world, but I'll just sum, summarize it by saying like, I learned so much from that experience because I was so narrow visioned about like going into like shooting cold water and exploring new places without doing the due diligence or the research of what those places required. Like they required some element of, of effort and knowledge and thought. And I just, I just thought I could roll in and everything was fine. And you get there. And I mean, even if I hadn't had the wrong entry date, having tons of camera equipment and all this stuff, like this is not a place tourists visit. It was one of Russia's main military bases. It was for a very long time, their naval base. And they thought I was a spy straight up. And yeah, it was a, it was a yeah, terrifying experience. You are a spy. Into jail you go. Exactly. Like that? Basically, my, I, had a, I had a guard who had one eye and his name was Igor. And I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't have fabricated that more. It was like, I thought somebody was punking me for a second. It was actually kind of hilarious. Did they, did they give you vodka? 
Uh, no, they didn't give me anything. They, they took me down to a kitchen at about 1 a.m. and I had a three small cups. One was like a lentil soup that just smelled like diapers. And then one was mayonnaise and one was cucumber slices. Yum. And I ate, I ate all of it because I had a guard like two inches from my back watching me because I had called the U.S. Embassy and they were pissed super pissed because they, they knew the U S embassy said if they didn't feed me that, that I could get out early because that was deemed cruel and unusual punishment. And so they fed me and that was the food. And, and I sat on the, on the toilet on the ground for like the next 12 hours with diarrhea. It was super fun. But was the uh, diaper smelling lentil soup delicious? Were you eating it? Um, I mean, it was delicious if you, uh, if, if that's what you're into not for me, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty brutal. It wasn't like having some epic curry from India or something like that. So, so you're, um, so you're in the, um, jail cell and you've got your guard. Were they talking to you? What, did you know what was going on? What was happening? No idea. No clue. No, I was interrogated for like six hours at the airport and I had a, a fixer. Her name was Olga there. And she was like trying to talk to them and I'd be like smiling and looking like everything's great. And she'd look at me like she'd be talking to them and look at me and be like, no, you know, things aren't good. And then basically I, yeah, I was interrogated for six hours and then they would have deported me right then, but we, they interrogated me. They searched everything I had. Then I got like two armed guards walked me past the whole crew. It was like Mike Lossness, Josh Mulcoy, Sam Hammer um, at the time and Michael Q and basically was like, I was like, call my wife, tell her I'm fine. Yada, yada, yada. I had no idea what was about to happen. And Olga was like, they're going to deport you. I think I'm not sure what's going on. I mean, I didn't go into this thinking, Oh, cool. 24 hours. I'm good. Like I had no idea what was going to happen. Um, Were you thinking this is a good story though? Not really. I was shitting my pants. I mean, I was terrified. Like, you know, like there's no element of this where I'm like, this is awesome. I'm so stoked. It was, I was absolutely terrified. Like um, just, just, you know, again, being 21 years old or 22 years old and, and for the first time in your life, you have all your rights stripped from you. You're in a foreign country where like you could disappear very easily. This isn't, this isn't St. Petersburg. You know, this is Vladivostok. There wasn't tourism there at the time. And even now it's one of the most untouristed parts of Russia. There's lots of anti-Semitism. There's, it's a very, at times dark place. So that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> did you, did you get to enjoy any of the tourist sites in Russia after that experience? Did you go to Moscow? No, not at all. No, I went to, I, I went to, I was deported to Korea. I checked into a Korean day spa for about a day. Well, and then good. I Ooh. bought a flight back. I, I remember calling Marcus Sanders at Surfline and being like, dude, I'm so sorry. I blew it. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, I, the, the, what made this more stressful is like, this was my career at the time. Like, this is my life. So I, I was the one that convinced everybody to go and yada, yada, yada. And all the surfers are there and everybody, so you know how it is. Like, imagine getting a call and being like, dude, I'm so sorry. This happened, blah, blah, blah. Like, I need more money to go back to the country. And so two days later, I flew back, went through the interrogation process again. Then I got to go in when my visa date was correct. And then we spent two weeks there and we had one day of surf one single day afternoon of surf and the rest of the time the boys basically were drinking vodka and <laughs> and um doing other things that i'm not going to worry about mentioning and it was it was a wild experience it was a, one of the worst trips of my life but it actually but it came actually out yeah. had a, it did it had a lot of editorial play i mean it was yeah. everywhere it's one yeah. of the it's one of the very few surf trips i remember i mean your trip to vladivostok 
uh, or to Kamchatka. I was like, oh mm-hmm. man, they did it. But Kamchatka came late. I went to Kamchatka okay. two years later and that okay. trip was epic, but there was more military issues. That was a trip where I was having like PTSD and we all, we, we did get chased by military on that trip. And it was a wild, it was a wild experience too. Um, but I mean, there's parts to Kamchatka that were kind of equally as maybe corrupt and other things, but the waves there are sick and there's insane setups and it was a wild, wild experience. Wow. Russia. Did you um, fall in love with the Russian people? They're very welcoming. Um, Yeah. I mean, the people that we did hang out with that weren't like putting me in in, uh, jail cells and stuff were awesome. Um, The local surfers were rad. Uh, I mean, I love, I love the Russian people. They're, they're like, it's like the wild West out there you know, and some of them are just so cool and passionate and and everything, but, but it's also just, again, it's the wild West. Like you never know what you're going to get. So it's a wild thing. So when you and, and, and sadly, a lot of these cliches are kind of real. I remember like a lot of times we'd go down to the beach and there'd be some dude illegally fishing in military fatigues in Kamchatka. And the first thing they do is like offer you vodka. It was like hilarious. <laughs> like it was, it was oh, really man. pretty funny. Sounds like heaven. You'd love it for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Chesapeake, Chesapeake, wandering around with little little uh, boxes of coconut waters to add to the vodka. Huh? Oh man, I would be I would be showing them the way. I'd be chipping ice from the from the native glacier and just showing them how to do vodka cocoa. I learned from Derek Riley in the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs. <laughs> uh, that's right, glory days. So, uh, Chris, tell me, what are the fundamental planks of your existence? Oh man, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, you know, I, I feel like everybody out there, you know, if you're if you're trying to pursue something in a creative way, you need a mission statement, right? And so I think it took me a lot of years to figure out what the purpose was of why I do what I do. And uh, I guess in some capacity, you know, the, the things that kind of fill my life up now or occupy my time really are, are trying to advocate you know, you can only spend so much time in these wild places before you feel a sense of responsibility to protect them. That was a quote, you know, stolen from Yvonne Chouinard. So I think that environmental advocacy is a, is a part of my life now quite a bit. Um, also, I think the search still, you know, desire for raw and untamed environments where there's a sense of adventure and that can be shared. You know, my family and my faith play a, play a huge role in that. But I think in many ways, growing up a bit and trying to tell deeper, more meaningful stories. Like I think I've tried to elevate the work that I'm doing to not just being um, kind of, you know, a crew of, of, you know, white dudes traveling around the globe with surfboards looking for waves. Like that's a, that's a fun story, but it's been told many times. So um, I think my work as a creative has elevated into like telling stories that deal with, um, the complex issues of like dealing with fatherhood and risk and, and reward and, or environmental places that are at threat or at risk. And so that's kind of what the last couple projects that I've worked on have been really deeply um, surrounded by. Do you believe in the, uh, in the persistence of the personality after death in any form whatsoever? Um, I mean, I absolutely believe in life after death, 150%. Um, absolutely. But I, I, in terms of that, the persistence of that personality, I'm not, I'm not sure if, if that's kind of, um, you know, in some way reincarnated into something new or passed on or, or whatnot. I'm not totally sure. I haven't really thought too much about how that would uh, translate into our future selves. Would you like to come back in some form? 
<laughs> yeah, probably. Is, is Pete Terrace? I mean, probably is like <laughs> as somebody who works over Pete Terrace. No, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Joel Patterson reincarnated. No, um, or like the ghost of Chris Morrow. Um, no, I. Uh, <laughs> Um, oh, there's too many, there's too many good jokes you could make here. Um, <laughs> um, I think if anything, no, I, I, I don't, I don't think I need to, because the goal of somebody who has a creative pursuit is that you should be wanting to create work that's, that's meant to be around a lot longer than you are. So why would you need to be around? So you wish for immortality? No, I wish for my work to be meaningful enough to stick around much longer than I am. Fantastic. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Amazing. Good. Lovely to chat. <laughs> What's, I have a we quick touched, question. We, we touched one, on a lot in a short period of time. There's <laughs> one more thing. What is hiding under your California flag? There's something back there. You're hiding oh, a, a some treasure map or... Oh, I mean, that's, that's, that's the... Ma- no, this is just... You're inside of a metal container. One of the... Um, the illegal illegal renovations in my studio space that we've we've done. So this is my little um, podcast zone, and um, yeah, but you should come up and hang out sometime and catch a couple sharky, cold, small waves in Pismo Beach. Oh, for <laughs> sure. Are, oh, you're in Pismo? Yeah, of course, man. Where else would oh. I be? This is the this is where Kelly Slater said the worst waves on the planet exist. So I, this is where I should this is where I'm, I should live. I'm getting on the road right now, <laughs> and we're going to get you to. Um, to share Magnuson's pool, huh? Palm, Palm Springs. Dude, I want to go so bad. I dream of body surfing that wave. That's amazing. Body surfing the big wedge, huh? Yeah, it looks sick. I mean, I've been to Kelly's wave twice. That thing is pretty orgasmic. I'm not going to lie. It's a sad, it's a sad reality of how fun it is. I think that's the heart. That's the hardest thing to digest. That's insane. It's a miracle. But, you know, you just can't dress it up as an environmental um, gift to the world. No, not at all. But that's why, I mean, to me, it's like they need to make one of those in Iceland where it's like geothermally powered, oh you know, that and would warm. be the, that Just would be the, they could, they could do it because there's so much steam offset from those geothermal plants that you could use that steam power to make, I mean, that would be the most all time thing ever. That's my dream <laughs> going there with like hot spring water. And it's like, snowing outside and you're yeah i mean one one can dream right Beautiful. have you told kelly about this plan i think you'd be cool, um yeah yeah good old good old kelly um yeah i mean i i just i just need to find that private invest you know that the, the key is just getting like somebody like the walton kids invested into something like surfing and then and then you're gonna see some real rad parks created you know like well, you, you, Tom Rockefeller was telling us that he, he's providing the tech for the Palm Springs pool. He's got a private client in Connecticut. He's I've heard big, uh, a big uh, wife pool. That's, that's crazy. I mean, that's the most epic thing you could ever have. But, but again, I mean, yeah, I, I'm the, the, the reality is everybody knows that like at a certain point, it's going to be crazy to think about how big and of consequence these wave pools can become because all you need to do is scale them up to make them really real and proper. True. Whether, whether the market can support it is the uh, big question, the $25 million question, huh? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we support theme parks, you know, I don't know. They, they do go in and out of um, favor though. Cause you know, the world is littered with uh, concrete, empty concrete rundown sort of jungles. that used to be theme parks. That is a good point. That is a good point. I think it's just a matter of like, 
where we where they're introduced. I mean, it's it, I, I go back and forth. There's a huge environmental impact, and they're so rad, they're so fun. But the alternative is what? Like, what's a better use? What's a better place for the our posterity or our kids? Like, home playing video games, which is equally as a huge multi billion dollar market or being in some capacity outside in nature experiencing something. And if this is a gateway drug for many to the ocean, then so be it. I think wave pools have a place. I mean, they're not going away. That's the reality. Nothing's going away. So it's a matter of how can they be run cleaner and put into more, um, uh, I guess, better environments where they can be used in a, in a better way. Well, I think I think the greatest things on earth. Never felt so happier than spending ten hours in a in a swimming pool and getting 150 waves. 100. <laughs> I I would really be interested though, like to consider, you know, one day, 20, 18 people at Kelly's pool if they were to fly across the world, the carbon emissions and the offset and all the environmental impact of going to Indonesia and having a surf trip versus that pool. I, I would really be interested to see, and that could actually be calculated because it's really easy just to say, oh, these are super environmentally unfriendly. But but when you actually do the math, like what does that look like? Like what what is more environmentally friendly? Do you think carbon offsets are bullshit though? What was that? Do you think carbon offsets are bullshit when they say they're going to plant plant a tree, they plant some piece of shit pine tree in a, in a fucking, um, bit of barren earth that dies fucking six months later? You know, it's a challenge. I, I personally offset my business through carbon neutral. It's like a, it's a company up in SF and, and a part of it, it's hard because I think just like trying to plant trees to offset your carbon, you're right. It's not the most effective thing, but I do think that investing into electric energy and or other sources like that is, is sort of a worthy investment. I, I think if anything, it's just like, you know, looking at solar power personally for every person is an option that we can all do. My, studios run off solar like i mean if, if that's not something that we can just do ourselves spending a little money then i think that i mean that that to me seems negligible in some way yeah solar's great i love yeah. solar electric no i don't know lithium big lithium i mean what do you do with the batteries you know yeah. like, what do you do with the batteries when you when you junk your print them to russia send them back to fucking china jesus harvey christ yeah yeah. Well, and you know, there's other great conversations to be had. Like you, you invest in all this tech and you run these cities off this tech and then you become subjected to whoever's making that tech. And nobody wants to admit the fact that like, you know, you might be becoming, you know, um, subject to Chinese factories making this stuff. I and mean, that's the hardest thing, like with oil, with gas, with everything is, as long as it's not happening in our backyard, that's okay. You know, because somebody deemed, you know, California to be this absolute, you know, Shangri-La, but Afghanistan or Iraq is, is okay. And as long as it's happening there and it's out of sight, out of mind, we're fine with it. If it's not happening on our coast, that's okay. As long as it's happening there. It's just, I have a hard time with that. Sometimes I have a hard time. Sometimes I want to stare the ugliness of our choices in the face because then maybe there's a reality that we might not use it as much. It, would that be a um, a new branch for you to take out on to bring because your photographs and uh, your montages and your films everything's very very beautiful. You don't bring a lot of ugliness. Is that a direction you might go in to show the ugliness in the world? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The 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 last couple projects I've done have actually really addressed that. I I, I just finished a book called um, Oh Look, it's right here. 
<laughs> um, yeah, no, I just finished this book, which is about Iceland's glacial rivers. And it, it, it's, you know, 10,000 words on the importance of basically um, protecting river systems from dams and, and other things. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that's something that, that does touch on a lot of that. My latest film, Unner, that premieres on the 22nd of this month. Um, it was a project with Billabong. It touches on like the risk of parenting and death and raising kids. And like, there's an ugliness to that. That's selfish. That's real. That's raw. That's not just like some glorified surf film. Um, and yeah, these are, these are topics I want to touch on. This is why I think we grow up hopefully is to, is to touch on things in a way that we understand. Um, early in my career, I went to, I went to a place and I thought for a minute, I wanted to be a photojournalist. And I realized really quickly that I just could not stomach some of the ugliness of the world. I went to uh, this trash dump in Nicaragua, which was like one of the seven most inhumane environments in the world. And I tried to document it to address the social justice issues of kids being sold into prostitution and whatnot. And I just, I mean, it, it literally like almost ruined my life. And um, I realized early on that I was not cut out for that type of work because I felt like surf photography was shallow and insignificant and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And to be honest, that's a part of why I started to go into a different direction to explore more off the beaten path places. Cause I felt like if, if I was going to show the beauty of the world, it might as well be in a way that would require more of people that require more effort, more patience, more, um, more humility towards the places you visit. And I don't know, that's just the way I felt about it. So just go back a bit. The film you made, what's it called? Una? It's called Unner. And um, I'll probably be emailing you to help push it out there. Because uh, we, it's been touring film festivals. It premiered at Tribeca, premiered at Mountain Film. It's not a surf film, but it has surfing as sort of uh, uh, this this entry point. Um, but it's about um, the life and near death of a good friend of mine and his role as a dad, um, managing risk in his career and his relationship with his daughter. And it was a it was supported by Billabong and Sony. And um, yeah, it's a it's it's about parenting in a complicated how, world. How do you spell it? U N N U R. So it's uh, we're gonna be we're gonna be doing a screening online on the twenty second of September, and then it's gonna probably go public after that in a couple weeks. So. Was that was that his name or is that the? That's his daughter's name, Unner. Okay. And uh, Unner is actually one of the seven names given to types of waves in Iceland. Well, I just I just pulled it up on uh, Google, and uh, I will. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's sick. I'll send you a screener right after this. Yeah, a decade ago, Ellie nearly drowned under a waterfall while kayaking a challenging Icelandic river. The near-death experience became a catalyst for personal growth in his professional career. Walking away from kayaking, a newfound passion for surfing, the birth of his daughter, Una, gave him a new perspective worth living for. Wow. Yeah. Good on you, Chris. Fuck, yeah, man, it's fun. I mean, that's the stuff that I love. I love using surfing as a tool to share, I think, more deep and meaningful experiences. I mean, that's what it can be. There's a lot of... There's a lot of that besides just the, you know, surf porn that we see every day. And also the Northern Lights porn. I just just, uh, just remember that you take amazing photos of the Northern Lights. Are they that, are they that good? Uh, I mean, they're pretty dang good. When you can see them, like just with your naked eye outside. Uh, the first time I saw them was with Timmy Turner on a beach in Iceland in 2006. And I swear 
it felt like an out of body experience, like actually legitimately out of body. It was a weird thing. And I, I, there's an obsession that happens when you see that, you know, like a high that you can't recreate where you're just like, I need to go back. I need to see it again. It's, it's a really weird thing. I mean, think about this, like you're taking something that's so stable, the night sky or whatever it is. And it's there every night, you know, it's, it's grounded. And all of a sudden it's moving it's patterns, it's flowing. Like that's a weird thing to, it's, yeah, it's like a trip, you know? <laughs> Imagine if you were tripping and watching that. Imagine, Imagine that, yeah. Well, you talk that's about no short- shortcuts. <laughs> We're talking about no shortcuts to joy, but. Yeah, that's a shortcut to joy. Shortcut. <laughs> hey, yeah. All right, Chris, thank you so much, man. Thank you, Chris. You guys are legends. And don't forget to send a screen. I'd love to watch it. I will send it to you right now, um, actually. And, and I would be super psyched for you guys to check it out and, and watch it. And yeah, it's a really meaningful project. And I think that you guys will get a kick out of it. So cheers, yeah. fellas. Thanks for everything. Thanks for all you Thanks, do. Chris. And uh, be, be easy on me. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube